Good morning, everyone. I'm Kristen Lays, and I work with Heritage Preservation in Washington, D.C., and I've been part of the team that has been putting on a conference during ASLH um, for the Connecting to Collections Statewide Planning and Implementation Grantees. Yeah, should I just get closer? Um, so we, the Connecting to Collections um, conference that we've been doing has involved uh, representatives from every, almost every state and, uh, and territory, and um, they have received funding through the Institute of Museum and Library Services to create state programs that reach out to museums, libraries, and archives around the issue of conservation and collections care. So we had a full-day meeting, long day yesterday, with our group, and we wanted to do two of our sessions during the regular ASLH so that others could learn about um, some of the programs that have been developed through this initiative. So I hope you enjoy that, and um, welcome back to all of our attendees from yesterday. Thanks. Thank you, Kristen. And I'm Tom Clarison. I'm the senior consultant for digital and preservation services with uh, Lyricis, which is the library and cultural heritage support network that's based in Atlanta. Um, last year, I had the great honor and great fortune to chair a session of the Connecting to Collections as a, um, part of the conference during the regular AASLH meeting uh, as well as I am doing this year. And the first session of Tools You Can Use focused on some projects that had been developed through Connecting to Collections funding, but they reached way beyond statewide preservation planning. They were uh, actually tools that could... Whoop, get this back here, tools that could um, be used individually by institutions, that could be used by collaborative groups uh, that were um, in a region within a state, um, that could even be used between states. So that was a well-received session. We had a number of people, both from the Connecting to Collections group as well as others who were uh, the, the uh, attendees for the regular AASLH sessions, and we decided to do a sequel this year. Now, I know it's rare in either Hollywood or in publishing that the sequel is better than the original. But I think we have a pretty good shot at that this time because what we've got is a, a program where I think you'll have a lot of opportunity to take things away that you can use at your own institution. And the thing that has really surprised me quite a bit is the fact that we have a number of programs where they gave reports either at the Connecting to Collections meeting last year in Richmond or gave reports uh, to the AASLH audience in general. And um, in between this year and last year, uh, that one year of growth in the projects is showing a whole lot of maturity, a whole lot of really projects that are blossoming from simply projects that were on the launching pad to full-blown programs, which I think uh, you'll really be interested in and, and proud to see some information about. So going with the Hollywood theme, and I know this is probably corny, I'm going to introduce our full cast here um, and uh, give them a little bit of background uh, of the, the full cast of our sequel, and then I'll sort of fade into the background and let our stars take over as we go along. So um, uh, let me give you a, a little bit of information about each of our speakers. To start our panel with information on some customized disaster planning tools, we have Nicole Dowd, and Nicole is a head conservator at the Maryland Archaeological Conservation Library 
Laboratory in Southern Maryland. She obtained her master's degree in archaeological conservation from the University College London in England. And Nicole has worked in museums and excavation sites in Romania, England, Turkey, Greece, Egypt, Jordan, Mexico, and the United States. And I was glad she didn't have to fly from one of the faraway places to here for our program. Uh, Her specializations include archaeometallurgy, Eastern Mediterranean and Eastern Europe archaeology, and disaster planning. And Nicole will be presenting in just a few moments on an adaptation of the online disaster planning tool D-Plan, which has been modified to meet the specific needs of Maryland's collecting institutions. Representing an organization that has contributed to the disaster planning field quite a bit in the past, but now is going to be talking about funding and stewardship is Celeste DeWald, who's the executive director of the California Association of Museums. And Celeste has over 20 years' experience working in the museum field and became executive director of CAM in May 2004. She worked in both administrative and educational positions at the National Steinbeck Center, the Museum of Art and History in Santa Cruz, the San Jose Museum of Art, and the National Museum of African Art. Celeste graduated from the John F. Kennedy University with a master's degree in museum studies. She is currently on the steering committee of the California Preservation Program, one of the co-coordinators of the Californians Connecting to Collections Program, and a member of the California Alliance of Art Education's Policy Council and the Western representative of the National Alliance for State Museum Associations. This really is sort of a transcontinental group uh, because our next speaker will be, uh, after Celeste, will be Paula Work. She gave us a preview last year of her state's value assessment tool, which was so new and different and was of so much interest to people that we wanted to hear more. And you will be really interested in seeing how far this program has matured. Uh, Dr. Work serves as Registrar and Curator of Zoology at the Maine State Museum, and over the past 20 years, she's worked in a wide variety of museum institutions, ranging from scientific repositories, private nonprofit institutions, to state museums. And what that has given her and, and let her be able to do is get a broad perspective on historical, scientific, and archaeological collections. And she's compare and contrast approaches to collections care as well as techniques for garnering external support for museum collections. And that is one of the things that in the Heritage Health Index, the real basis of the uh, Connecting to Collections program is sort of one of the often overlooked goals of the Heritage Health Index. So it's interesting that both Paula and uh, Celeste will be talking in that area. Our final speaker captured everyone's interest last year. Her project captured everyone's interest at last year's Connecting to Collections conference with information on Virginia's top 10 endangered artifacts campaign, which has served as a launching pad for many similar initiatives. There are a number of states who are now identifying their top 10. Uh, Christina Newton has over 16 years of experience in the nonprofit cultural sector and has been a leader in Richmond's arts and cultural community for over a decade as founder and director of Richmond's popular First Friday's Art Walk. She's an experienced curator and consultant, currently serving as project manager of the Virginia Collections Initiative at the Virginia Association of Museums. So with all these stellar resumes, I'm going to step back and let's begin our program with Nicole. Good morning, everyone. 
So again, my name is Nicole Dowd. I'm the head conservator at the Maryland Archaeological Conservation Laboratory. Um, it might seem a little odd for an archaeological conservator to be talking about disaster plans, but um, conservators tend to get, especially in archaeology, we never know what we're going to be facing from a day-to-day -day basis. And I think that falls very well into recovery from a disaster, whether it be a flood, a fire, um, any kind of uh, event that can potentially cause damage to collections. And it, it became... You know, it was, it was kind of a series of odd circumstances that people started to contact my institution uh, looking for assistance uh, following a disaster. And when we started interacting with people, with institutions, we found that those that had disaster plans in place, few and far between, sadly, um, it really made it much easier for us to facilitate to help them in their recovery process. And so when we saw this opportunity through IMLS to help specifically the state of Maryland. The Maryland Archaeological Conservation Laboratory is an entity of the state of Maryland. Um, we really wanted to develop a tool or a series of tools that could facilitate in the creation of personalized uh, disaster preparedness plans. So how many of you have disaster preparedness plans at your institutions? Just a show of hands. Fantastic. That's actually overwhelmingly different from the majority of audiences that I address, so I'm very pleased. <laughs> so just a little background information. Um, IMLS and the Connecting Collections Grant uh, really wanted, uh, focused on, you guys probably know this, focused on uh, directing uh, individual state entities to, to develop tools, initiatives, workshops, uh, events, uh, some of which we're going to cover later today. Um, but specifically, the call to action is a multi-year um, initiative to, ways, or to raise public awareness and inspire action. And it was done through, and you can see through some of the other actions that IMLS has taken, such as the, um, oh, I just forgot, the, oh, the bookshelf, the IMLS bookshelf, with many of you are probably uh, familiar with. You can see the reach and the breadth that IMLS, the impact that they've been able to have on areas across the country, whether it be uh, historical societies, museums, archives, lending institutions, you name it. So when looking over the potential for us to access the, the Connecting to Collections um, grant, we looked at the Heritage Health Index, which was their primary uh, means of identifying areas in which museums and collecting institutions uh, really required some assistance, really needed to make some improvements. And the state of Maryland, with this need to develop um, uh, disaster preparedness plans, focused on mission number two, which is every collecting institution must develop an emergency plan to protect its collections and to train staff to carry it out. Sounds pretty simple, but a lot of people find it incredibly daunting. A lot of people don't have the background in disaster preparedness plan, and they needed something to, to educate and to facilitate this process. So the Maryland, Maryland State, the state of Maryland, obviously applied for this through um, the Maryland Histor Historical Trust, in addition with the collaboration from the Maryland Archaeological Conservation Laboratory. And then we were joined by uh, partners such as local museums, libraries, historical societies, and archives, who really assisted us in providing their very unique support and their their areas of knowledge. And this is a list of some of the institutions um, that, by and large, either had conservators, had developed their own disaster preparedness plans and systems, um, and really had some expertise um, and were able to provide additional information. We also very much uh, collaborated with conservators, 
within these different uh, groups. Obviously, I'm an archaeological conservator, but I know nothing about how to conserve boats. I know nothing how to conserve lighthouses. There are such a huge breadth and variety of collections available uh, in our state that we really needed to draw in multiple resources from multiple um, areas. So when we set out to identify our goals, there were three things that we really wanted to achieve. The first is developing an online disaster preparedness tool, something that was easily accessible and my favorite four-letter word, free, for anyone in the state of Maryland and, of course, anyone who's in, in our neighboring areas to use. A pocket response guide, so something that was easily accessible to institutional staff to, to assist in the response of, a, of, a, of, a, of, a, of an event. And then we also really felt that it was important to develop a cooperative disaster network. This meant that anyone who signed on to participate in our tool would also have the ability to sign up to partner with other institutions, other neighbors in the state. Um, this might be people who had different resources or facilities that they would be willing to share with other institutions. Um, my facility, we have the largest archaeological vacuum freeze dryer on the East Coast. This comes in hand when you want to, um, when maybe another facility does not have access to that particular type of technology. As an example, um, one of the wonderful institutions that will be talked about <laughs> as part of uh, the Virginia's um, uh, identified um, objects at risk, uh, the Fairfield Foundation had sadly a flood event this past spring. And through social media, we were able to see that they were in dire need and that they had a lot of archival material that was at risk. Summer was setting in, mold growth, all that kind of wonderful fun stuff that you get in these southern climates was about to set in. So we called them up, volunteered our services, drove down, picked up their collections, and within a week we had saved all of their material from that particular um, issue of degradation. So developing those, those contacts and those regional networks we felt was incredibly important. So what is MD plan? That's what we're calling our tool. Are you guys familiar with D-Plan set up by the Northeast Documentation, Document Conservation Center? Raise hands. Okay, great. Well, it is a fantastic tool. Uh, it's also very, very heavy if you guys have actually looked through this. And it's very, very archive-specific. And as I just stated, there are so many collections that reach beyond the breadth and depth of archives, of paper, of, you know, we, we have multi-material uh, collections. And that's what we really wanted to address. And we wanted to make it very simple because in the, in the state of Maryland, as in, I'm sure, many states, we have a lot of mom-and-pop, volunteer-led historical societies, collections, museums that really don't have the expertise or the education behind them to delve into a plan of that size. And so what we really wanted to do is we worked in cooperation with NEDCC as well as the software designers, and we tailored it back to meet Maryland's specific needs. Um, this meant that we expanded upon our response to particular collections, um, which I'll go into in a second. And then we also um, developed a pocket response guide out of this. We realized that as fantastic as it is to have a, a massive, big manual, which is very, very helpful and very useful to train off of, um, not everybody, not your, your nighttime janitor, not your... Um, you know, your volunteers are going to necessarily have this at hand. And so we wanted to make something a little bit more accessible. And we really wanted to model off of um, the 
the disaster wheel, which is, you know, a really accessible, wonderful tool. And then we also kind of tailored it down to showing you a very, very boring slide of my personal pocket response um, guide. But this was developed by, um, I'm sorry, the Council of State Archivists. And so we took some of the information from the disaster wheel, some of the information from the Council of State Archivists plan, and we developed our own because these are my keys. This is my identification card. And in the back of here, I have my pocket response guide, which has all the numbers for all the people that I might need to call in the event of a disaster, as well as how to actually respond to immediate threats, which is terribly important, keeping obviously personal safety at the highest priority, but also um, dealing with how to protect your, your, your collections. So. so bringing all these together, the Cooperative Disaster Network, getting museums, libraries, archives, all the state repositories together, developing all this information, bringing this in, that's how we developed our Maryland Connecting to Collections Disaster Plan. So... Because I'm so proud of my baby, MD Plan, I want to share it with you. So this is the website. Please visit it. Um, like I said, this is open source. It's open access. It is specifically designed for the state of Maryland, but the, the information on there is ubiquitous. It's, it's, it's going to apply to so many other places, and we really hope that you can dip in and steal whatever parts are relevant to you. So please, steal. Steal away. Everybody got the website down? Awesome. Okay, let's hope this works. Hooray! So there's our Maryland D plan. As you can see, the format is very, very similar to just the traditional NEDCC D plan. Um, we didn't move away from it, um, and that was just made easier by the designers. So we're going to go ahead and we're going to log in to the demo, I think. I lied. Okay, so I usually have this memorized, but I'm going to double check. So here's the information. Sorry, I got my login and my password backwards. So just go ahead, login, demo at md.dplan.org, demo. Ta-da. All right, we're in. So anyone can sign up to access this. You can always access the demo. The demo has all the information that's available, but if you want to create your own plan, I don't care if you're not in the state of Maryland. Um, because we are such a small state, we have so many neighbors, Delaware, Virginia, D.C., Pennsylvania. We have people from all over signing into our site um, that take advantage of the D-Plan services. So to go in... There are lots of different options, and one of the easiest ways to kind of overview what we have available is, oops, is when you go into Check My Progress, it really does show you the breadth of the information that we require. So at the end of the day, you're going to get a product over here. This is 126 pages of gold, of wonderful information about your collections, how to respond to them, all your institutional information, who to call, where your boilers are located. You know, that's something that you might need to know every once in a while. Um, as well as, you know, other resources for you to access for training purposes. That's all included in this 126 pages. And what we're really asking you to do is to fill out 30 pages of information. That may seem like a lot, but that's why you delegate. I don't know where the boiler system is or how to turn it down, but I've got a facility guy who does, and so I send him a snipey email and force him to fill it out for me. But 
you know, it's something that when you pull yourself, when you pull your organization together, um, we have uh, historical societies that will, you know, get their friends together, their friends board together, and they will sit down and they can hash this out in, over the course of an hour, plug it into the computer, and have a very, very concise, specifically designed, tailored plan for their institution. So it goes through things like the staff, the collections. Actually, the collections is the coolest part. So I'm going to go ahead and pop in there real quick. So we have a list of all the collections that you can potentially have or hopefully potentially have. There's some broad terms in there. There's some specific terms. Um, and basically by going in here and checking what material you have in your collection, when you print out the plan, it will print out response recommendations for the treatment not the, not the long-term conservation treatment, but that short-term recovery treatment for your, for your objects. Um, I don't know how to preserve record albums in the short term, but I can access this very quickly, and it'll tell me if I need to make sure they're dry, make sure they're put into a freezer, make sure that they are, you know, maybe sealed in, in a vacuum, any other, any very simple response measures that can be carried out by your volunteers, by your staff. So, and obviously then connect, um, connecting with a conservator later on to fulfill your long-term conservation needs. But it really is very extensive. Feathers, film, leather objects, glass objects, manuscripts, newspapers, photographs, posters, scrapbooks. It really goes on. And this is where that collaboration with um, other institutions really helped us out. There were a lot of contributions going in to provide you with some very good information about how to care for your collections in the face of fire, flooding, etc. So, oh really? Oh gosh. All right. So I've gone on for a while. Um, the other thing I wanted to say, so really do go in here and play. There's all kinds of information. Um, if we It talks about your disaster team so that you can actually identify who in your facility is responsible for different aspects of the plan. So, and it gives you actual definitions as to what those roles are. So you know your responsibilities. So people can actually go into this with some knowledge about what they're, what they're taking on. Um, it also gives them uh, training information, uh, all your emergency numbers. When you first access this plan, when you first sign up and say, hey, I'm interested in participating in D-Plan, if you're from the state of Maryland, as soon as you put in your county and your zip code, we immediately populate the plan with every single emergency number, your local MEMA agent, your, your local fire. We put in your sheriff's home phone number if he, if he allows us to access that. We, and we update this on a yearly basis. Um, it's, yeah, sad, but he let me do it. So it's his own fault. <laughs> so it, it really does pre-populate a lot of the information. Uh, we ask that people fill it out so they can tailor down. And at, the end, and at the end of this, when they go through all these different steps, when they look at all these different forms, at the very end, we ask them to write out their scope and goals. Well, usually I think at the beginning you should write out your scope and goals. Like, this is what I want to achieve. This is what I want to do. This is the outcome that I desire. But really, it completely redefines your, your way of, of thinking about disaster plans, about your institution, about the people and the resources that you have available. And then at the end of it, just sitting down and saying, hey, we're not so far off base here. We actually have a handle on this. We have a lot of information. We've been forced to think about things like where the emergency power source is, who my local plumber is, who my local locksmith is. And you really sit down with a better understanding. And at the end of the day, you get this wonderful thing right here. You have to print it out. 
I'm going to say that to everybody. It's great to have this all online, but you have to print it out because at the end of the day, the fire department isn't going to let you in to get to your computer. It needs to be in a plastic bag in the back of your car. So I stole this out of my, the back of my car when I got out from the airport. So, you know, a really wonderful resource that is easily distri- distributable. And when I say distribute, not just to your staff. I'm talking about distributing it to your local fire department, to your local police department. They want to do walkthroughs. Contacting your local MEMA group, or I'm sorry, I say MEMA because I'm this, you know, Maryland emergency agent, but your state emergency management agency. Contact them, give them a copy, put them, put, make sure that they have you on their radar, because if they don't know that you have a plan in place, if they don't know where you are, then that you have potential collections that are at risk, you can't really, it's going to be much more difficult for you to find assistance at the end of the day. Now, the last thing I want to say before they kick me off, um, please do look at this more in depth. I would love to talk about it for much longer. Um, is where was I going? Uh, by developing these plans, these plans aren't going to prevent a disaster from happening, but it is going to assist you in recovering from that disaster and recovering in the most knowledgeable, efficient, financially efficient, hopefully, means possible. Um, so thank you very much. As we do our switch over here. And Celeste Dewald will be our next speaker from the California contingent. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. And thank you, Tom, for inviting me to be a member of your cast. I'd like to know when my equity check will be coming. About 946. So I'm from the great state of California. Do I have any other fellow Californians in the room other than Julie over there? A couple? Great, great. Nice to see you here. As you can see, we in California enjoy the beautiful you see here. Uh, We're known for um, wonderful, the ocean, the Pacific Ocean, the beautiful coastline, but we're also known for some other things as well. And that would be wildfires and earthquakes in particular. Um, We're known for, uh, this picture up here is from Southern California in 2003, where there was, it's now known as Firestorm 2003, where there were over 15 wildfires in Southern California in one month. And this picture that you see up here at the upper left-hand corner is of an actual historic house that was um, destroyed, and the entire archaeological collection was in ashes. Um, We also have down here from an earthquake at Hearst Castle, um, the damage that was done to some of the artifacts there also in 2003. That was a banner year for natural disasters. And also on the bottom right here, um, some maps and documents and papers that were destroyed due to a leaky roof. So not so much a natural disaster, but um, still um, a man-made disaster nonetheless. And so we're known for these disasters, but what you know, like all of your other states, the, it's these things that are, um, that are potentially destroying the millions of artifacts and documents that we have in the thousands of heritage-collecting institutions in the state of California. So given this need, that's why we really felt that we needed to answer 
um, right away to the call from the Institute of Museum and Library Services and Heritage Preservation to be a part of this Connecting to Collections campaign. And we felt that this is the time where we need to kind of bring together the various stakeholders that can help us um, preserve these collections across the state. So the first thing that we did is we brought together some various stakeholders and we did a series of planning meetings. Um, one in Northern California, one, one in Southern California, because we are a huge state. We had a very impressive group of individuals that were a part of that. Archivists, um, librarians, registrars, collections managers, you name it, we had them at the table. Um, not just sort of from specific institutions, but also from st a lot of statewide organizations and national organizations as well. We had foundations, state agencies, private nonprofits. We really felt that this was an opportunity to bring our, our, our various communities together under one umbrella. And the result was that we came together with a vision. And that vision was a self-sustaining culture of preservation management in California heritage institutions. And like many other states um, we've heard, you had to prioritize. You couldn't really take everything on at one time, right? So the two priorities that we developed with that ver those various stakeholders at the table, um, those priorities were providing safe conditions for collections and marshalling public and private support for collections care. These are the various partners that were involved in the implementation plan. Um, a lot of these were also involved with the planning stage, but this was the team that we felt really needed to come together to help move the implementation project forward. Um, now this, I think that this is one of the lasting impacts of this, of this, um, of this statewide campaign is the, the lasting network that we developed. So even though all of these organizations are now a part of the implementation plan, th those networks didn't necessarily exist beforehand. What did, did exist was the California Preservation Program, the one in the center. And actually, Julie Page is co-coordinator of the California Preservation Program. So what existed were these relationships with state parks, the library, the archives, and the California Historical Society. All of those organizations had representation on the California Preservation Program Steering Committee. What didn't exist was necessarily the relationship with the museums. So that was the first thing that we did prior to implementation is we strengthened that network. We, we made the... Um, the California Preservation Program invited someone from the California Association of Museums, me, to be on the steering committee, and someone from the Balboa Art Conservation Center as well to serve on that. So we had greater representation from museums. And as you can see, it also changed sort of the, um, the focus, I would say, or, or not so much the focus, but a different way of thinking about the California Preservation Program's mission, that it wasn't so much focused on archives and libraries, it was focused on what they were doing. They were preserving heritage collections. This is the overall, I'm just kind of giving you a big picture before I start to go into specifics about what I'm going to talk about today. This is the overall um, scope of work that we have in our implementation plan. As you can see, it, we've got disaster preparedness workshops, disaster network, networking workshops, an emergency hotline, um, project development workshops. All of those are really wonderful. They've been going on for years. We're looking at the tail end of our, of our three-year project. Julie is the person to talk to if you want to talk about those workshops. Really, what I'm talking about is this little tiny thing over here that's called the stewardship <laughs> campaign for trustees. So by no means don't walk away from this thinking, wow, they spent all that money on that stewardship campaign. No, this is just a little tiny part of it. 
And why did we feel the need for that? Let's harken back to the, um, those pictures from those planning meetings. When we had that, the, all those planning meetings, very strategic um, discussions with you know, a broad-based group of individuals, what we were hearing is that they felt that they, they needed to somehow, in order for us to achieve the vision of the self-sustaining culture of preservation management, we re- really needed to help trustees understand sort of their role, their fiduciary role in caring for the collections of these in- wonderful institutions that they were supporting. So the first thing that we felt that we could do is to develop a toolkit. And um, this would be a tangible thing that we could give to trustees through the staff of museums or archives or libraries in order to help them understand um, um, you know, what the fiduciary role is, but also something that the directors could use, that they could pass out at board meetings. And we didn't develop this just um, on our own. We, we felt we needed to talk to trustees. So who we brought to the table were representatives from the Museum Trustee Association and the California Association of Library Trustees and Commissioners. So we actually had trustees being a part of this project that we were developing. And in, we also conducted some interviews with um, museum and library directors, and what we were hearing is that they wanted case studies. Case studies, case studies, case studies. And they wanted, you know, really something that um, they could, something concrete that their directors, their trustees um, could see and hear about. And we gave to them an example of capital laws on uh, collections care, and they loved it. So we felt, okay, you like this. What could we do in California that would kind of be an extension of that? And what they said is they said, we want this, and we also want California examples. So if you haven't seen this, um, please do. It's published by Heritage Preservation. It's an excellent resource. It's online. Um, but I have some copies over here as well. And hopefully, um, do you have extra copies, you know, publications still available at Heritage Preservation? Yeah. Great. It's a great resource. So we used that. And then we also did what they recommended. We developed um, a printed piece along with that that we sent to all of the institutions that we knew of within the state of California. And what the other pieces were, a letter to the director essentially um, explaining, introducing them to the Californians Connecting to Collections project, and also telling them, this is how we'd like you to use this toolkit. We would like you to take this these two pages, which is the guide for trustees, and I have copies up here. I don't have enough for everybody, um, but I'm also going to give you a URL at the end that where you can go to it. Um, but I have some samples here that you can look at. Um, so take this trustee, make copies, give it out at your board meeting, use it as a jumping off point to talk about how you can fundraise using collections, how you can use collections to bring in new audiences, you know, really use it as a springboard to start that discussion and to talk about the need. Um, we also have thought that we would be remiss to not use this as an opportunity to tell the staff about the free resources that are available in California to them to help them care for their collections. So those were sort of the three pieces that we, that we put on in addition to capitalize on collections care that we sent out to all of these institutions. So these are the metrics that we are measuring in order to see the, the, the 
um, rain, sort of how the impact, what our impact is. Um, we did mail it out to over 2,000 institutions directly to them. Um, we did have set over 760 visits, and they are downloading an average of two and a half pages per visit. And this is last one is the one that I'm particularly proud of, that they're spending over five minutes on this website, which is telling me that they are spending time on it, reading it, and downloading the resources. Now, I'm, I'm proud of that, you know, particular, um, you know, last metric, but we also, when we got together on the steering committee level, we're talking about, but how are they using it? How are they using this toolkit? And, you know, we asked, but we didn't get very many stories. So we said, you know, we need to do more. This is not necessarily enough. A printed piece of resources is what they said they wanted. We did that. But what else can we do to really make sure that we're making an impact? So that takes me to sort of our next step um, is the pilot charrette. So this was a one-time program that we did. It's a pilot program. We did it last month, and we called it a charrette because what we, what we think a charrette is is a collaborative session in which a group drafts a solution to a problem. The problem being that, that all of these institutions, these heritage collecting institutions, need money in order to care for their collections. So let's bring together the director, the trustee, and the person in charge of collections care, bring them together for an um, afternoon for a charrette and talk about, have them develop an action plan of something that they can do within their institution. So that was, oh, wait, this was my reminder that I need to thank Hollinger Metal Edge, um, who sponsored our, our reception. Um, and I just really want to thank Bob from Hollinger Metal Edge for, for doing that. Um, the, the was mostly a work session, mostly sharing case studies, but we did felt, we felt like we had to make it fun as well. And so we did have a reception, and we had a tour of UCSC Special Collections Grateful Dead archives, which was a lot of fun. <clears throat> so um, what we did is we did focus on case studies because, you know, as we heard, case studies is what they want. And so we used the case studies that were in our toolkit. Um, to, we had a couple um, pe people come and talk at the charrette to talk about um, what they did. Those um, live examples were the Grateful Dead collection. Um, talking about how they how they got donors. You don't see any Grateful Dead pictures up here because I didn't feel like I had the rights to really put that up there, so I felt kind of iffy about that. Um, but we did have someone from the Monterey Public Library, Kim Bowie Burton, come and talk about um, the community days that they had funded, um, which somehow by opening up kind of opening their arms and saying, community, come to us, you know, let's scan your photos, share your stories with us, that they then converted a lot of those individuals into donors. The other example is worth for the California State Railroad Museum, where they talked um, about really taking one star artifact um, in a, in, and really using that in a campaign. Um, we also had a, um, a case study from the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County, where they talked about an adopted artifact campaign that they did online called Object of Affection. And then the Museum of Photographic Arts really had a very sort of um, I would say simplistic but well thought out donation box in their lobby um, that was all about asking the public, the visitors, to make a donation, but not towards just you know something un, you know unknown like a general fund, but to help them raise money to buy something for their collection. So these were the these were the examples that we gave that we were we're calling collection centric fundraising. 
two minutes, two minutes, okay. And so we had them work in groups, as we said, and we gave them worksheets, and we, t- we asked them to really, um, you know, work together to develop sort of an action plan. We, act- we asked them to give specific steps, and we're going to follow up with them at the end of three months and ask them if they completed those steps as a way to evaluate whether or not we really made an impact. So what we found out is that we we had our, these are our takeaways. We were successful in jump jump starting these collections centric fundraising campaigns. They came away with ideas that they wanted to do. Um, we really feel that there is a focus for and a need for to focus on public fundraising as opposed to say grant writing, um, and that the case studies and the toolkits were the favorites. Now what we found though was that although the group work was appreciated, it wasn't quite the home run because they didn't necessarily come in teams. Um, Very few of the organizations actually did that, even though we were specifically asking for that. The directors and the trustees simply didn't come. Um, So I, I feel like what we have here is a good model, but it didn't necessarily meet the target audience that we we set out to do. And I would say that in conversations with the people who participated, the reason for that was the institution just wasn't ready or willing yet to really embark on a campaign like this. Perhaps um, they have other priorities at this point in time, or perhaps they have more basic needs like board education and not necessarily about their collection and about the needs of the collection, they weren't quite ready to make the leap to a fundraising campaign. So what are our next steps is we are going to talk about this more. I'm presenting at the Museum Trustee Association about about this, so I'm hoping to get some more information. And we're going to explore different formats for sharing case studies. So this is the URL. It's pretty long, but if you are interested, there are handouts in the back. I also have my business card, and as I mentioned, I have the samples here. So thank you very much, and on to the next show. Thank you. Now Paula will give her presentation, and I think you'll be interested in the format of this. I certainly was. (laughs) Thank you. Um, As I was here last year, um, the kickoff uh, documentation about what I was trying to present, the draft paper is in the back room for those of you that are not familiar with this. I am going to review uh, the key components of what this is about, but it really does um, interface well with what Celeste just presented. The Heritage Health Index had the four points that they really wanted um, individuals to focus on. The first was safe conditions for collections. The second was emergency plans. The third was to assign responsibility and staff. And the fourth was individuals at all levels of government and in the private sector must assume responsibility for providing the support that will allow these collections to survive. And We've been having conversations within our collection holding institutions, and this is a project that tries to capture that. Uh, What you see here is the partners that have helped put this together. This is a planning grant uh, for the state of Maine, and um, here we go. Tools you can use, values assessment revisited. 
what happens with values assessment is what we're trying to do is change the conversation with the public. What we have learned is that we have a lot of cool stuff. We know what our cool stuff is. But if we do not know how to interface with the public to tell them about our cool stuff, we lose. And most people initially think of monetary value when you're talking about collections. And institutions have so much more to offer. I need to note that this assessment sources out of the work of a couple of people. Rob Waller and Sally Shelton came up with a risk assessment technique uh, in the 90s that was then continued by Rob Waller to the present day. I read that paper years ago and saw that they took this group approach to solving a problem. So values assessment action steps. Um, determine your value categories. Now, categories in museums, I have to also give credit here. Uh, Judith Price and Gerald Fitzgerald in 1996 came up with the idea of categories in collections. But what are we talking about? In your collections, you can actually step back and say, how can I categorize these in such a way that I can talk about them in groups? Primary value items. These are items that if you have them in your collection, they have inherent value. And if you lose them, it changes who you are. At the Maine State Museum, we have the pistol that was surren surrendered to Joshua Chamberlain. If we lost that pistol, we would be a different kind of institution than we are today. So think about what you have in your collections, the things that you love, and you can actually move through and categorize them as primary value, secondary value, tertiary value, etc. Secondary value tends to be replacement is costly or difficult, but you don't tend to lose what you got the piece for. Uh, for us, we have the Spears Mill. If you come to our museum, it has three floors of a functioning mill. It would be extremely costly or difficult for us to replace that mill, but not impossible. And the value that the public gets from it, which is exhibition and enjoyment, would not be lost by replacing it with another mill. Step two, you have to define who uses your collections or your institution. It all comes together. Remember, if we source out of our collections, we actually find a lot of things that drive our institution. So the quickest way to figure out your user group is to set out a logbook and ask people, why are you visiting? What are you here for? What you then need to do is take those user groups and you need to assign them to different categories so that you have a better understanding of how you're interfacing with them in the present day. And then you can also make the choice whether you need to shift to a different approach. So type one users are mission driven. Type two users are called value added. They may also be mission driven, but when you interface with this group, it adds value to what you can present whether that's an educator, a historian, somebody that actually gives product back to you that you can then give to the public. Type three users are special interest, type four non-targeted, and type five unassessed. Now special interest groups are things like 4-H clubs, uh, individuals that have good interests. Some people have told me about foamers, people that really love something so much that they're a nice user group you can categorize. Non-targeted doesn't mean they're not important, but you, if you meet the needs of type one, two, or three users, the walk-in through the door is going to have their needs met. And then the unassessed is where you need to brainstorm because there's a lot of potential users out there you just haven't thought of. Next, you need to look at your value categories and determine their scope of influence. 
This can be as straightforward as noting whether there's local, regional, national, international, or it can be nua more nuanced, like this relates to the town's most prominent family. This, this is a very flexible thing. It needs to relate to you. Step five, determine institutional relevance. High, highly relevant, moderately relevant. You can do it as a numeric system. What we found is a great way to do this that, that isn't so tricky with math, and I'll come back to that when I finish this. So we decided to take the boots on the ground. What did we learn from actually trying to do values assessments? These assessments turned out to be as easy to do as having a conversation. Regardless of the kind of institution, initial assessment times basically took under half a day to flesh out. Although these assessments initially targeted collections, the discussion of value and values became much more encompassing, and this was great. How do these collections relate to what you want in the shop? The assessments have been fun, but more importantly, they've been insightful. For every institution assessed to date, there are examples of potential immediate payout. Aha moments that would allow for a quick win or immediate change in thinking that could make a difference. Uh, we did the Norlands, um, Washburn Norlands Historical Living Center, and just talking about the Washburn family, there's 10 uh, children, seven boys, extremely successful in, in government, and it's like, well, where did they end up? Could we link to the other Washburn name institutions that are in other states? Oops. I clicked on the wrong thing. The assessments, oh, I went backwards, go forward. Diverse, completely unrelated types of institutions appear to find value in the process. Uh, doesn't matter whether you're an archive, uh, history museum, living history museum, natural history museum. It's flexible enough that this works for you. And the assessments seem to change the conversation and help prioritize institutional choices. There have been surprising outcomes. Uh, some of the surprises have been about how to modify the tool, but others have been, wow, we hadn't looked at it that way. And with the case studies that I will be pointing out, um, I give examples of those. Certain similarities have begun to stand out. User groups and their institutional relationships, there tends to be some overlap between different institutions. It's not 100%. Mission-driven, students, K through 12, homeschoolers, alumni, adults. Value-added, college students, teachers, researchers, scientists, historians. Non-targeted, unscheduled tourists, walk-ins, websites, special interest, scouts, boy scouts, girl scouts, genealogists, other enthusiasts, and the unassessed. And this turned out to be most institutionally unique and seen as a high potential area for targeted growth. I told you I'd come back to scope of influence and relevance. 
Scope appears to actively help an institution determine how widespread fundraising opportunities may be, as well as explore the level of partnering which may be available to raise a project or institutional need to the next level of funding. These were some of those surprises and aha moments. And institutional relevance, determining institutional relevance um, does help the institution set priorities, but it was priorities along a spectrum of choice. The most effective approach for doing this tended to be a sliding scale between accomplishing the task, its relevance to the fundraising goal or institutional mission, and how easy it was to do. So if you just think of it as a sliding scale between those end members, it was pretty easy to help you set priorities. If something was important and easy to do versus important but would take you a year of planning, the first are no-brainers, the second you have to rank according to your resource ability. So to summarize, these assessments appear well worth doing, but please know this is an organic growing process which is happening with us, the community, allowing us to test what works and what doesn't along the way. And to that end, I have copies of the more academic draft intended for those of us with strong collections backgrounds three case studies to illustrate on-the-ground outcomes, and what we've really learned is there's a clear mandate to create a simple, well-illustrated brochure which allows for self-guided assessment or pre-assessment by institutions. And we actually got to talking with the group, and one of the things they said, you know, when I get my dishwasher, you get this quick start menu. We really need a quick start menu for places, and then follow up with the very friendly, nice brochure. So I did want to pull up one or two of the, uh, I tried to do this in the concept of dashboard. So I'd, when you look at the papers in the back related to how the assessment worked, uh, it turns out as you do the value assessment, you actually end up going back to those points to put in the scope. So that kind of groups together. Um, user groups, I just listed them out as the institution discuss them with me. Um, institutional relevance and prioritization. I gave you mostly examples because the full-blown thing would have been much too intensive. And then highlights or surprises. And I want to tell you about a couple of the highlights really quick. For the Elsie Bates Museum, one of the, the surprises for me was that I need to add a category for unassessed collections. And that that first portion of the, the collection, we have to start targeting resources in order for that initial assessment to be made because there's enough unassessed collections at different institutions that you can't tell me the value. And so we need to find a funding source to get at those unassessed collections. And that was just a component of what was very valuable at this institution. At Reedfield Historical, one of the neat things we got for the highlights or surprises was the value-added card catalog that had all the names of the historical society people that were a part of the town was a primary category collection value item. So some of the outcomes that are produced for your institution can raise up to being primary value items. And particularly fun for me, the Washburn Norlands The significance of the setting, I had never thought of ruralness as a value, but after we walked out of what we were talking about, that's a saleable commodity. It was really cool to talk about. Um, the presence of the caretaker became a primary value to the institution by having the caretaker on staff. 
You had people that were taking care of animals and it changed the relationship with the, the user. The barn fire resulted in a fundraising drive to create a replacement barn and we realized that the new barn was of more historic value than the old barn which had been built late for the property. And the presence of secondary item, value items, the, the secondary value items actually took a primary value role. And what that meant was having a workable wood stove, which was a secondary value item, you could replace it, but it was so necessary to the living experience of the living center that those secondary value items hit primary value status. So that's what this, this values assessment allows you to do. And it's a lot of fun and I encourage anybody to try it because it is as simple as a conversation. Thank you. Thank you. And we will have no fighting over the handouts in the back after this one. I really am interested in that. And before Christina begins, uh, one thing that I wanted to mention is we will wrap up after Christina's presentation, but as you leave, we're going to run a YouTube video about Christina's project, which is really good. It uh, lasts about nine or ten minutes or so. Um, so if you have a little bit of time before your break or next session, you might want to stick around for that. I have to turn this down. Good morning. Uh, can everybody hear me? Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be included and appreciate um, Tom's invitation. Um, when he told me what time it was uh, that we would be speaking, I was not as excited, not being um, a morning person or uh, like speaking in public. So this is a win-win. <laughs> but I really appreciate uh, your time. Um, I've got a lot of slides, so I'm actually going to kind of go through this pretty quickly. I am with the uh, Virginia Association of Museums, um, and um, I won't go uh, uh, too much into the Heritage Health Index results because we've um, talked about that, but as we've uh, realized, um, the four points of the Heritage Health Index report um, noted um, four main priorities. And uh, Virginia's statewide planning grant and our current implementation grant have included projects to meet all of these points, but um, I'm going to talk specifically about our top 10 endangered artifacts project, which has been our most successful. But during the planning grant stage, uh, VAMS drove to increase uh, awareness of collections, um, originally by hosting three marketing workshops around the state. Um, and we added marketing resources to our website, and we distributed media releases um, regarding the importance of collections care. So we have, as you can see, we um, have particularly focused on the point of marshalling um, public and private support for increasing awareness of collections care. And um, while the workshops, you know, were well received by staff, the, um, as you can see, we've heard some pretty blunt comments from the press. So um, collections care was determined to be not sexy at all. Um, so, you know, they said, sure, we understand that collections, museums are important, but really, um, who cares? It's really not going to sell newspapers. So we went back to um, the drawing board on that uh, to figure out 
how we can take that to the next step. So in our implementation grant period, uh, which is uh, 2011 through uh, next year, uh, we are still working on that same uh, recommendation from Heritage Health Index um, of marshalling public support. Um, but the idea of um, looking at lists, uh, creating like a top ten list, uh, was uh, really interest to the press. And as you know, there's a best of list, there's a top ten list, there's a four numerous uh, subjects that you can think of. So uh, we took the idea of um, uh, creating something, putting something into a concise, um, digestible message um, instead of something that was, uh, you know, preserving collections uh, is kind of um, not as easy for everyone to uh, wrap their mind around. And so we created something sexy. We call our list sexy. Um, we had our public awareness campaign. And we also were uh, looking at other known successful uh, examples, such as the National Trust for Historic Preservations, Most Endangered Historic Places, and locally, Preservation Virginia's Most Endangered Historic Sites program. But then we also wanted to engage the public, so we had a public voting component. And so that really uh, was the um, outreach as well as interaction uh, component. But I do want to just uh, take a moment to um, talk, uh, talk about our sponsor, or excuse me, not sponsors, but our partners in this project around the state. Um, so everywhere from historic uh, uh, Department of our Historic Resources, uh, a local university, uh, John Tyler Community College, which we're uh, working with on our online courses, Library of Virginia, which is our state archives, and the Mid-Atlantic Regional um, Archives Conference uh, for connecting with archives because uh, the association really didn't have um, a relationship with um, archives community. And we also are working with Preservation Virginia and then the Virginia uh, Conservation Association. And uh, this is just a quick slide of some of our other, um, we call it Virginia Collections Initiative, our umbrella project that um, is our, under our Connecting to Collections program. But uh, so we were looking at our public awareness of collections, which top 10 comes under that, resources on our website. We're also uh, tackling safety of collections, and our most successful project has been our circuit riders, and I have a wonderful uh, consultant here today, uh, which are um, in-person uh, mini collections assessments, which have been just incredibly successful. We could talk about that um, in a, um, as well, just in a presentation. We have online training, uh, technical assistance, and then for disaster planning, we have held workshops around the state 10 for each year, and then we have uh, regional support teams. So it's been a pretty um, in-depth project, and uh, the top 10 um, project is just one component um, that has logged. Um, alone this year, we've logged, uh, my coworker and myself have logged 200 hours just on that project. So how does the top 10 work? These are basic components for, uh, for this year. So we're, um, it's a complement, as I mentioned, to Preservation Virginia's project. 
and this is our website, virginiatop10artifacts.org, which I hope that you'll visit and uh, um, learn more about the project. We have an online voting component, which is open one month, a peer review panel of professional um, conservators and collections management experts, which will determine the final honorees. The staff and to market, which is our marketing partner, uh, managed media relations, so we did that in-house so we could make sure that everything was um, uh, uh, done professionally. But then we were also working with the sites um, over the summer to maximize their PR and their outreach to their constituents internally and externally. Um, and so then we start in the uh, spring and summer working internally uh, with the honorees, public voting, and then we have a fall announcement, which we just um, just announced this year's honorees. And I do have um, uh, copies of this year's uh, honorees in the back. So uh, this is just a, a briefly the um, program benefits that we had to, um, well, we have a list of our participating um, uh, venues from last year. I'm going to go briefly um, talk about the 2011 outcomes because uh, when we came together last year in September, we were still in the midst of our, two, our first uh, year of our project. And then I'll talk about comparison to this year because there was definitely um, some uh, lessons learned. But uh, the benefits for participating for the sites to convince your um, sites around the state, it's promotion, media coverage, fundraising opportunities, raise awareness of your conservation efforts internally. It's a way to um, uh, engage your constituents and expand your audience about the hard work that you're doing to, to maintain your collections. So this is um, just a website screenshot of kind of one of our uh, notable success stories from 2011. The Virginia Museum of Transportation uh, uh, nominated their 1776 Norfolk and Western locomotive. And uh, they really connected not only with their, um, their internal or, or their local um, constituents, but they really connected with uh, rail history enthusiasts. Um, and they were really savvy with promotion. So they put uh, their participation in the top ten competition right on their website um, and um, to uh, really enable them to really get out the vote. So they ended up being kind of uh, one of our um, uh, public, because of their number of votes that they had uh, engaged through the public online public voting component, uh, they were one of the People's Choice Awards. And today, uh, this is the uh, refurbished 1776, which was um, presented or um, uh, displayed uh, this 4th of July. But uh, because of their um, People's Choice Award, uh, which is really um, a certificate and kind of name only, they use the participation in our program in a um, uh, uh, grant um, program for Trains Magazine, and they won $10,000 grant to help them with the, uh, the, um, uh, refer the repainting of their locomotive. So to say the least, this was really exciting to be able to be involved with, with this uh, project. 
Uh, just a few other success stories. Booker T. Washington uh, in Roanoke, Virginia, um, the national landmark, uh, because of the press that they garnered uh, through the media coverage of the program, there was a local retired FBI uh, photographic archivist with over 25 years of experience who happened to live in the area, contacted them and volunteered to help them deaccession and um, digitize and dispose of the original cellulose nitrate film. And uh, he and his son are still active volunteers. So, so the outcomes are very and really exciting. Um, and then just a few other items. Um, we have um, a number of local facilities said if they were a top ten uh, honoree, they would um, commence uh, with a fundraising campaign uh, to um, restore their artifacts. So we have a number of sites from 2011 that have started or completed uh, fundraising campaigns. So the project is really giving them uh, leverage to go to their board and to the public to, um, to commence um, fundraising. So just uh, um, doing our evaluations, we haven't uh, started our evaluations yet for 2012, but for two 2011, uh, we uh, did uh, survey with uh, the nominees and the honorees, uh, and we did receive um, very positive results. And so I'll just, uh, whether uh, we asked them about was the program helpful to spreading the word about your site, and we definitely received um, the purple or is the positive uh, feedback. And as you can see, some testimonials that we received, use of social media was definitely critically critical to getting the word out. Sufficient r funds were raised to restore our artifact. This is a slide of a majority of people felt that uh, their audience was more aware of the importance of conservation um, after participating in this project. So that was very exciting to hear. And um, uh, so we also asked how beneficial was the public voting process to getting the word out about the uh, program, and we have uh, uh, positive remarks on that. So kind of uh, are looking at the first year to second year lessons learned. The first year uh, we heard, when we announced this project, we were kind of thrown for a loop because we heard from some uh, sites, and particularly directors, that um, they did not want to be associated with endangered. They were worried that if they were would participate in this project, that their donors would feel that they weren't taking care of their collections, which was not at all the purpose. This was to help you sh tell your story that of how difficult it is to maintain your collections, and the artifacts may be coming to you um, in a state of peril. So we heard that endangered was a dangerous word. Uh, top ten was intimidating. People felt, well, I don't have artifacts that are worthy of being in a top ten list. Te we did not really have a budget for technology that was, um, um, so we did a lot of DIY. We did it ourselves, so um, so thankfully technology has improved. But, oh, I should say that um, um, this year concerning the endangered comment, we haven't heard that at all. And we feel that part of that is because um, we 
uh, worked into our language, into our press release, into our discussion with the sites and with the media. Um, uh, we put the message out first of why we're doing this, that taking care of collections is difficult and uh, that we're creating awareness of the importance of maintaining collections. So that's been exciting. We also have not heard any mention about the intimidation of being on a top ten list. So I think we've we're building we've all we've been successful in um, educating our um, audience as well. Um, and concerning um, uh, tech or social media and marketing, um, at first the uh, larger sites that had marketing uh, departments, maybe marketing staff, definitely were able to get out the vote a little bit. Um, uh, better than smaller sites. This year, as technology advances and social media advances and more people feel more comfortable with it, size doesn't matter. And so it's uh, voting has been uh, more equal across the board. But we did have a few sites that didn't quite understand that um, there was a panel to review the artifacts to designate the top ten. So there was a lot of, you know, vote for us, we're number two, and, and or I've got nine thousand people were sitting there um, just kind of hitting the voting button. So um, that uh, what, so there was a little bit of continual education about those components. So year two, um, we're basically in 2012 improving on a good thing. Um, and one thing that, um, as uh, Tom mentioned, we did create a promotional video, which we'll show at the end, um, to, uh, that we were able to use early on to distribute uh, to our partners, to the sites, participating sites, to the first-year participants so that they could use that as a fundraising tool on their own. So, so that's been really great. So I'm excited to share that with you. And this is a screenshot of our website. One thing that we've also changed is we had uh, created a blog last year, and we integrated the information about the top ten in our new VAM's new website. So we have under services um, the information about the top ten and the various components. So you can go to um, vamuseums.org as well. So these are some other tools. Um, this is a shot of our uh, nomination form, which is also on our website. So again, those are just the same components about um, staffing is very heavy on this project. Oh, Lord. Oh, I'm getting the bell. Um, <laughs> so um, I'll just go through these. Uh, first year success, we're distributing last year and this year to over 360 outlets in Virginia and D.C., um, and also to 650 national publications, um, and we distributed four press releases this year. This is an image of our Survey Monkey tool where the public was, um, would go to, um, to vote. And they really did get out the vote. These are just a few examples of um, the, our, the um, Historical Society blog page. Our Governor's Mansion nominated an artifact, so that was very exciting. And so they sent out an email blast talking about their participation 
And then our favorite Facebook post, um, they incorporated, um, this is actually a fan of Wilton House, incorporated um, Michaela um, on, superimposed her on top of the waistcoat that was nominated. And so that she, they say, Michaela's impressed, so vote Spotswood. And then our, <laughs> and our website. So, um, so people really use social media, email marketing um, to get that out. And looking at, this is just a list of the participating sites. First year we had 25 sites um, participate in our project. This year we had 21 nominations. So it was about the same, um, but the voting was more equitable. So we um, really were um, happy about that. And that was because we changed. The first year we did training with just the honorees on how to get out, um, you know, to kind of promote their win. This year we did training with all of the nominees early on, and that was really a successful change because it um, gave, gave people tools to promote themselves, and um, I think they felt more engaged to take their message forward to their constituents. And by incorporating um, the project in program into our website, um, we looking at Google Analytics. Our if you look at August, which is um, uh, toward the end, our traffic to our website just skyrocketed during the public voting phase. And these are just um, a number of um, sites we received. Um, uh, press coverage uh, around the country because we were picked up by the Associated Press uh, three times. And in the end, um, let me make sure I didn't pass that, um, we had uh, over 117 media hits. And the first year, uh, we had 57 media hits, which we were you know, thrilled with. So this year we've just been overwhelmed. So these are just a couple comparisons to first year and second year. So as I mentioned, we had 25 nominations first year, almost 100,000 hits, or, or excuse me, public votes to our website, 57 media hits in D.C., Virginia, and across the country. We were picked up by the Associated Press twice, which is, you can imagine how exciting that is. Invitation to present last year to C2C. And we also received, um, with our marketing partners to market, we um, received a Commonwealth Award of Merit from the uh, uh, Public Relations Society of America Richmond chapter for our project success for community relations. And um, uh, we also have the Conservation Center for Art and Historic Artifacts has launched, or not launched, but is uh, getting ready to announce uh, the Pe Pennsylvania Top uh, Most Endangered Artifacts, and I understand Oklahoma is also um, moving forward with the project. So this year, uh, we had 21 nominees. We got in a site from Washington, D.C., so that was exciting to move out of our market. Over 120,000 public votes with 111,000 unique uh, surveys. So some people were going in voting twice or ten times. Um, the voting is really just public engagement component. And as I said, we had to date 117 media hits across the country. And that was really due to being picked up by Associated Press three times. And I've created a relationship 
uh, with the Washington Post or Associated Press writer from D.C. who tweeted about, wrote about our project and tweeted about it, so that was exciting. Um, and we're here today again um, presenting at C2C. So as we move ahead, um, uh, this is a image of our handout that I have in the back of this year's honorees. Um, we decided to the um, the panel designates the top ten honorees based on their application and the information they provided, the integrity about their artifact, how they're maintaining the artifact. But we also, because there's a public voting component, we wanted to kind of reward that effort. So we do have a People's Choice Award for the top vote getters. So that honors that um, that effort. But it also, the project isn't just about who has the best marketing department. So moving ahead, we really, this has been the most su successful project that VAM has done, and we and it has definitely been an inspiration for other, site, uh, other states and could really be um, successful if we have um, funding to continue it. So we really need to look at additional grant funding. We feel that this has opportunity for corporate sponsorship um, and uh, that will help us continue to staff the project because it is very staff intensive. Um, and hopefully technology will improve so we can um, continue to tweak those, uh, those um, items and look at um, we want to maintain a, um, a list and keep up to date with the artifacts. So I'll just leave you with, um, this is a long testimonial. I won't read the whole thing, but this is from uh, uh, John Long, who's director at the Salem Museum, which is in a small town outside Roanoke. So it's in a rural area of Virginia. But um, because of their um, press uh, about their participation in the program, they had uh, no less, and this was weeks ago, I'm sure they had more, uh, no less than seven people come in to find out about whether they were, they or their family were in the midwife records that they nominated of um, African-American midwife who was delivering babies in the 19-teens to 1940s. And um, one gentleman, Mr. Wright, came in to see if his, he was, his family was involved in the records. They were. He was excited. The museum um, made copies for him. They set and shared stories. They took oral histories. Um, and they found out that, sadly, um, Mr. Wright had um, passed away but um, John just wanted to share um, the appreciation of being involved in this project. And because of this relationship, uh, Mr. Wright left his memorabilia to the museum. And this is the other uh, quote from an article that John wrote in his local paper. So I will just end with, close with his comment. Some yellowed scraps of paper or old tattered textiles seldom garner media attention. You sometimes have to wrap them up in a top ten list to get a reminder of the constant threat to the rare and informative items held in public trust. So, thank you. I think these are 
four of just 56 wonderful projects that you can hear about. And um, these are really some innovative things that you can see. A number of us um, uh, have, uh, have had a chance to learn from. And what I'd like to do is, rather than take time for group questions now, maybe we can have our presenters stay up front here for just a few minutes and take individual questions on their projects. Um, I'd like to ask you to join me in thanking our presenters one more time. And I will actually start our final show here of um, what we're going to do for the video. So thank you, too, for attending our session today. Museums, libraries, and archives are the stewards of our history and cultural heritage, what could be called our society's collective memory. This memory is represented by the diverse collections of artifacts that these institutions preserve for current and future generations to learn from and appreciate. Artifacts in these collections come in all shapes and sizes, representing an equally varied assortment of materials, such as paper, textiles, wood, metal, and stone. Stewardship is a daunting task, as all artifacts in the care of collecting institutions are threatened each day by environmental factors, disasters, or simply by how their material makeup is affected over time. Frequently, artifacts arrive at an institution damaged and deteriorating. Still, other artifacts require constant daily care simply to maintain their current state. It is an endless and underreported struggle. Here at the Hermitage, our number one curatorial goal is total conservation of our collection. Our Korean tapestry is actually a textile painting. It was made in 1730, approximately, and it was purchased by Mrs. Sloan at auction in New York. It was originally purchased for the Norfolk Museum of Arts and Sciences, which is now the Chrysler Museum, and it was displayed there. It was returned to the Hermitage upon Mrs. Sloan's death in 1953, where it has remained rolled and tied to the ceiling ever since. The nature of the material is inherently weak. Um, it's painted on silk, and as you can imagine, silk degrades over time. Uh, we're not sure how the piece was originally exhibited. It has significant losses and tears around the edges, um, indicating that it was either a scroll or it was affixed to a panel. So. Conservation of the piece uh, would include a decision uh, about whether it would be a scroll or a panel piece for modern display. The Virginia Association of Museums explored media attention and interest surrounding the safety and sustainability of museum, library, and archive collections, and found unless there was a compelling reason to follow these stories, they remained untold. In 2011, VAM developed a unique competition to provide the hook for the media, thus providing a pathway from the conservation lab to the newsroom. The Virginia's Top 10 Endangered Artifacts program is part of the Virginia Collections Initiative, 
a statewide collaboration to ensure the ongoing safety and stewardship of collections held by museums, libraries, and archives in Virginia and Washington, D.C. Virginia's Top 10 Endangered Artifacts program is not a grant-giving program. Rather, it is an opportunity to engage the media and create public awareness about the ongoing and expensive care that collections require. The Top 10 complements Preservation Virginia's Most Endangered Historic Sites program. Preservation is a statewide historic preservation organization dedicated to saving, managing, and protecting historic places and developing preservation policy. As partners in the Endangered Artifacts Program, marketing efforts between the two organizations are coordinated to create a complementary awareness campaign for preservation. We were so excited that the Virginia Association of Museums conceived this idea of the Endangered Artifact List. Um, it, as a curator by training, um, it goes straight to my heart in terms of what's important. And I think oftentimes... Um, individuals that visit museums and historic house museums um, consider what they see on display as the only thing that's being held by those institutions, when in fact institutions today struggle to maintain the collections that they've been given um, in the public's trust. So we thought this was uh, a terrific project. Um, it complemented our uh, list of endangered historic sites um, because the artifacts and the sites together often tell a story that's much more three-dimensional than either one can alone. A variety of objects are nominated to the Virginia's Top Ten program that tell Virginia's fascinating story. Artifacts are as diverse as a deerskin-covered wooden trunk and mosaics created by an African-American female architect from the 1930s. And some artifacts stretch the boundaries of typical museum displays, such as a World War II Wildcat single-engine plane, the USS Battleship Wisconsin, or the Norfolk and Southern 1776 diesel locomotive. This is known by so many people, and it had gotten really bad looking, and that's when we entered into the Virginia Association of Museums uh, contest for you know, the most endangered uh, piece in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Uh, and we're obviously pleased that so many people thought this needed to be restored and fixed. And here we are today looking at it. We're a museum in Roanoke in the western part of the state that a lot of people don't know about. So just by virtue of having something nominated uh, made some folks aware of the fact that we were there. Uh, we were later asked to come present to the Virginia Association of Museums at their annual meeting. And that's probably a result of this. Um, but yes, I think it gives us better exposure. It helps people know that the official transportation museum of the state is not in Richmond or Norfolk. It happens to be in Roanoke. Um, and we hope they'll come see us. Our attendance is up. You know, and we don't know all the things we can attribute that to, but it might be this as well. Each year, collecting institutions across Virginia and D.C. have the opportunity to promote their nominated artifacts during the public online voting portion of the program. Once the public votes are tallied, an independent professional review panel selects the top ten honorees by thoroughly weighing the threats and integrity of the artifacts. Their recommendations also level the playing field for those sites that don't have the marketing power of larger organizations. While public voting does not determine the top ten, it is taken into consideration by the panel. 
and the 100,000 votes cast in the first year of the program are helpful for museums to use when courting donors or applying for conservation grants. As a result of past competitions, Collections Care has gained increased visibility and honored institutions have gained new volunteers, secured funding for the conservation of their nominated artifacts, and received grant awards resulting from their designation. Survey results show that priority for Collections Care has taken a more prominent role at the participating institutions. The Virginia Association of Museums has been instrumental in raising awareness of the number and type of artifacts in need of, of assistance in Virginia. Uh, without that uh, notification and validation uh, that comes from this, this kind of effort, uh, we will have a much harder time convincing potential donors and supporters uh, of the significance of what we have. We nominated the stair railing. It's a wrought iron railing uh, facing the river uh, on the front end of the house. Uh, that was installed in the 1840s by the second owner of the house named Joseph Ficklin. The railing uh, is of wrought iron, uh, also some soft cast iron and brass, and over the years its uh, situation has deteriorated because it's exposed to the weather. We have had a number of uh, both potential conservators as well as uh, metalsmiths and professionals in the field contact us as a result of this publicity, offering their services to help analyze and uh, repair and conserve uh, these materials in this particular staircase. We've also had more interest from uh, some of our current supporters who were unaware of the significance of, of this architectural element. They knew the value of the house and the site, uh, but not of these particular details. Artifacts receiving a top 10 designation remain on the endangered list until which time the threat to them has been diminished or resolved. Objects not designated may be nominated again, as may any new objects deserving of attention. Virginia's Top 10 Endangered Artifacts is an inspired concept for promoting collections care and has received recognition across the Commonwealth and beyond. In the first year alone, the Associated Press picked up on the Top 10 story twice, resulting in 56 media impressions across the country. The Virginia Public Relations Awards honored VAM with a 2012 Commonwealth Award of Merit for the program's notable impact on community relations. Our community histories are critical to our future, so that's why it's important for this effort to preserve these artifacts. Without them, the artifacts will go away. They will dissolve, literally. Time will dissolve them. Without knowing where you came from, without knowing the history of your community, it's hard for you to move forward into a future that you can envision because you have no roots. Roots are important. It's not that the roots can tie you down, but they can tell you something about your past, they can enrich what you're doing, and they can form a foundation for moving forward. Artifacts are essential to that. Artifacts are only useful if they tell a story to the public. They need to always be available and accessible to everybody. It's no good to keep something in the back room if it's not going to tell you the story 
about your history. So you don't want to you know, sequester these things or put them in back rooms. You want to celebrate them, put them out there, preserve them, make sure everybody knows about them. There's an emotional connection that just reading words doesn't convey. That emotional connection is impossible without seeing the artifacts. And that's what brings the power to our history. Everyone can be a part of this important program. As a member of the press, you can help get the word out about the important work happening every day at collecting institutions at the local, state, and national level. As a history buff or art lover, you can cast your vote for your favorite museum, library, or archives artifact. As a staff member of a museum, library, or archive, nominating an item from your collection only helps to highlight the important work done by collecting institutions to protect and conserve the artifacts that play an important role in telling the stories of Virginia's diverse history, heritage, and culture. So, what are you waiting for? That's... 